Today is 2006, February 27th. Lecture 36 today, The Big Bang. We'll begin in just a moment. Okay, today, last week, during the lectures, we introduced nature of space and time, and we introduced you to the observed fact that the universe is expanding, that all the galaxies seem to be moving away from all points in the universe at a speed which increases as you move out in distance. And what we're seeing, of course, is not the galaxies actually moving through space, but actually space and time expanding out from between the galaxies, and the galaxies are simply carried along for the ride. We call this expansion of the universe the Hubble Law. It's an observed empirical fact of the universe, and it demands some explanation. To pin down the Hubble Law observationally, we had to revisit the whole question of how we measure cosmic distances and how we can get an accurate measure of how fast that expansion is. We have to get outside of local space. We have to get into the realm of the very large scale, or what we'll call cosmic scales. This week, we want to now look at the implications of, that, of those observations and that physics we laid down of the physics of space and time. Gravity is the main force that rules on the largest scales in the present day. But was that always the case? What if we run the clock backwards on the expansion? We ask, what was the universe like at very early times? Or we run the movie forward to the future and ask what the universe will be like in the distant future. What will it become over time? The universe is evolving, it's changing, it's unfolding. And what's remarkable about this is unlike most forms of systems opening up and evolving, like stellar evolution, where we had to rely upon observations of clusters of stars and groups of stars because a single star's evolution is so slow we can't observe it, the universe is a very different beast. Because as we look deeper in space, we are also looking back in time, we can actually watch observationally this evolution unfold from the past to the present. And we're going to see how that all comes together in the real main picture we have for cosmology, what we call the Big Bang model of the universe. And so today's lecture, number 36, is on the Big Bang. We're going to introduce the idea. In tomorrow's lecture, we'll look at the observational, firm observational evidence for the Big Bang. And then the final two lectures of this week, will examine the early phases of the universe as informed by both the Big Bang model and our knowledge of, of elementary particle physics, surprisingly. And then finally, on Thursday, we will talk about where the expansion of the universe may lead in the future and look at the fate of the universe. Today, the key ideas are as follows. We're going to introduce to you the Big Bang model of the universe. It is our current physical picture to explain the ex expansion of the universe that's observed and make other predictions as to the structure and evolution of the universe. What it say, states is that if we run the clock backwards, the universe must have started out in a very hot, very dense state in the, in the distant past. And as the universe has expanded from that initial hot, dense state, it is progressively cooled. The state of the universe as old and cold that we see around us is a result of some 14 billion years of that evolution. We're going to re reintroduce you or re reintroduce the idea of cosmic redshift, again in the context of expanding space and time, and also to introduce the idea of cosmic look-back time which is the way in which we can piece together the history of the universe by using the fact that light has a finite speed. We're then going to introduce what it is that controls the rate of expansion of the universe. The universe does not always expand at the same rate, perhaps. We have to understand how that works, and that has to look at the matter content and the energy content of the universe. We call this the critical density. This is the important second number of cosmology. The first is the expansion rate. The second is the ratio of the density of matter to a certain critical density. We'll define that here shortly. 
And finally, we're going to put those ideas together and define something we call the Hubble time. This is actually an estimate of the age of the universe. How far can I follow the expansion backwards in time and find out when did it start and actually give us the age of the universe? So today is the Big Bang. Now, expansion of the universe. The universe is observed to be expanding around us today. As I look out into space, the basic evidence for this is Hubble's law. As I look at galaxies, more and more distant galaxies appear to be moving away from me proportionally greater speeds. We quantify this in terms of something we call the Hubble law. Now, the universe is filled with radiation. It's filled with photons, and it's got gas in it. And we know that from experience of normal gases, whether they're made up of photons or atoms, as that gas expands, it will cool. And so I expect that as the universe continues to expand, it will also cool off over time. Now, this sort of suggests what's going to happen in the future, but then if we turn the clock around and say if the universe is expanding and cooling into the future, then if I turn the clock around in the distant past, the universe, because it's expanding now, must have been smaller in the past. The galaxies are closer together. This means that the matter density in the universe is higher. There's more grams per cubic centimeter of space in the universe. And if we're compressing this gas, it's going to be hotter. So as I run the clock back further and further, I will find the universe in the past was smaller, denser, and hotter than it is today. Can we find the evidence for this? And the answer, of course, will turn out to be yes, otherwise I wouldn't have anything to talk about for the next four days. If we run the clock back far enough, will eventually reach a state where the universe essentially is very, very small and very, very high density. In fact, if we run it all the way back to time equals zero, it should be inf zero size and infinite density. But we won't push quite that far back. And it should be very, very hot. But we know that very, very hot, dense gases become opaque. Look at stars. Stars are hot, dense balls of gas. We can't see to their interiors because at some point they become opaque to light. The same has got to be true of the universe. If the density and temperature rise enough, the universe will become hot and opaque, which means it's going to then become a surface that can radiate, and that's going to give us one of the observational clues to this early hot, dense state. We know that if we just simply run the clock backwards, we measure the expansion rate of the universe now by measuring the Hubble constant, which we talked about last week. I can use that to simply say, well, let's just assume for the simplest assumption, that that rate has been the rate it's always been expanding at. How long do I have to go backwards in time before I reach zero size, before I go back to the point of origin? That turns out to be a finite time in the past. We can measure that time in the past, and this lecture is designed to show you how we estimate that time. Now, we call this initial very, very dense, very, very hot initial state the Big Bang. In many ways, it's kind of an unfortunate name because it gives the impression of an explosion in space and pieces flying away from that explosion. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's not a single event in space. It's actually an event in time that gave birth to space. The name was chosen by Fred Hoyle in the 1950s. Sir Fred was actually a proponent of an alternative theory of the universe called the steady state. And although in his memoirs he denies that he thought up the name Big Bang, which he did for a, a series of BBC radio lectures, to denigrate the theory. He never was a supporter throughout his life, and that claim always seemed somewhat disingenuous, although I'm willing to take Sir, the late Sir Fred at his, uh, at his word on this. Nonetheless, it's the name we're stuck with. People have actually, uh, a few years ago, Sky and I think it was Sky and Telescope or Astronomy Magazine, one or other of those, tried to hold a contest to come up with a new name for this model of the universe. 
None of them really worked. So the Big Bang it is. We're going to define the Big Bang not as an explosion. We'll sort of get that whole picture of cosmic explosion just out of your head. What you're looking at is the Big Bang is our fanciful name, however inappropriate, for the initial very, very hot, very, very dense initial state of the universe. Now, the, this infinitely dense and infinitely hot universe in the past actually is not simply made up. It actually follows from some very key physical assumptions. The first of these is that general relativity is valid on cosmic scales. General relativity is our modern theory of gravity, a la Einstein. We saw it on Tuesday last week. We're going to assume that general relativity, which tells how matter tells space-time how to curve and curves space-time telling matter how to move, that that works not just simply on the scales of the solar system or of black holes, but actually it works on the scale of the entire universe itself, that it's a true description of gravity on very large cosmic scales. The second assumption is what we call the cosmological principle, namely that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic on very large scales. When I get out past about 100, 200 megaparsecs, and I average out over all the local lumps in structure, I actually find that the content of the universe, the rate of expansion of the universe, my physical description of the universe, does not depend upon where I happen to be measuring that from within the universe, homogeneous, nor does it matter in which direction I happen to be looking when I make those measurements, isotropic. The proviso, of course, is that the scales have to be big enough to get away from the scales of individual galaxies and lumps of matter. The third assumption is that the energy of the vacuum, empty space, is not completely empty. It actually does contain a little bit of energy density deep with inside of it. And that energy density, as Einstein tells us, is equivalent to mass. Energy gravitates as much as matter does. It curves space-time as much as matter does. That's what E equals mc squared really comes down to. The energy of this vacuum is either zero, completely empty space, really is devoid of energy and matter, or it's maybe very small. Now, we call this energy density of the vacuum today a cosmological constant. We use the same notation that Einstein used when he made, as he called it, his terrific blunder in which he did not predict the expansion of the universe because he introduced an additional cosmological constant term in his equations for general relativity to stabilize the universe and stop it from being dynamic. But in fact, today we know that a cosmological constant, or something very like it, may in fact be real, may be finite and non-zero. Now, all of these assumptions, and this is the important point, are testable. And in fact, the Big Bang is a fully testable mo physical model of the universe. If it wasn't testable, it wouldn't be any use to us. We wouldn't even waste time talking about it. If you can't test an idea, it's not science. It's something else. It's conjecture. It's a wild-ass guess. It's something else. But it's not science if you can't test it. What the beauty of the Big Bang model of the universe is, is that it has withstood a tremendous number of tests. And it wasn't always obvious it was going to over the last 50 or 60 years. It's been a tremendous triumph of late 20th and early 21st century that we validated most of the points of this picture. And a lot of what today's lecture and tomorrow's is showing you where that validation comes from. All of the principal assumptions that the Big Bang is based upon, general relativity being valid on cosmic scales, the cosmological principle, and the energy of the vacuum being zero or small are also testable. And a lot of what modern cosmology is on about is testing all of these things. Now, the Big Bang is a testable model. I'll emphasize this again. All these basic assumptions are plausible. 
They're supported by empirical data observed on solar system or galactic scales for the most part. We they've withstood a number of tests, both in laboratory and otherwise, and they all have a pretty good sound physical basis. There's nothing really crazy involved here. One is simply applying it to a perhaps unfamiliar environment, the whole of the universe itself. But, and this is an important proviso, they are not all required to be true for the Big Bang to work. It may be that general relativity is not valid on large scales, at which point we'd have to find some other way of physically describing, well, why is the universe expanding? The cosmological principle is not required to be true, but it appears to be true in all the empirical tests. Furthermore, it's not required that a cosmological constant be zero or very small. It could be really big. That would change our picture a lot. All of these are testable hypotheses. All of these can be examined. No one takes anything on faith in this game. You test everything. You may trust it as a basis for asking questions, but you verify it relentlessly with experiments. You never, it never ends. You are always testing your ideas. So when you really want to know, is the Big Bang the right picture, fit, the right physical model for the expanding, evolving universe, it comes down to really this. The real test is, does that model actually explain the universe we observe? Does it make testable predictions about new phenomena we not, might not have thought to look for? And does it correctly predict an extremely wide range of observable phenomena? Now, like any big picture, you do not bring down the model on one false observation, on one idea where it doesn't work. It's always the preponderance of evidence that brings down a model. Right? For example, the Copernican principle. The Ptolemaic theory was good for 1,500 years. And what brought it down was not one book or one idea. What brought it down was the sheer weight and preponderance of observational evidence that it simply could not explain. One observation by Galileo Galileo, the phases of Venus, did not kill the Ptolemaic theory. It required a huge amount of work over centuries. Same is true of just sort of the analogy I think of. What if I want to bring down a building? I don't bring down a building by knocking out one loose brick. It's got to be a preponderance of faults in that building. I can kick all the doors out here in, in Evan's lab, and the building will still stand. I can knock out half the bricks in this room, and the room will still stand up. I have to really get down to the physical foundations being wrong. I have to actually have a preponderance of faults to bring a building down. The same is true of a model. So every now and then you're going to see a newspaper report saying so-and-so at whatever university has proven the Big Bang is wrong. Well, that's just crap. Because one observation can't bring down any model. It's got to be one observation pointing out a flaw, and then as you follow that flaw, you find it's a cancer that's riddled throughout the entire idea. That's how you bring a model down. You don't just find one contrary observation. First of all, you don't know you did the observation right. That's often the case. Sometimes, however, that contrary observation is the first crack in the edifice. Just like the phases of Venus, Galileo did not bring down the Ptolemaic theory, but it showed a cancer in its foundations. So that's what we look for. We're always testing it because we're hoping maybe we'll find that thing. Because if you find the thing that brings down a theory, you get famous. Now, that's why people try to bring down a theory with one thing. They want, to be, they want fame without all the work. Now, let's look at some of the evidence for the Big Bang. As the universe expands, space gets stretched out in all directions. Matter, meaning galaxies, stars, people, us, all get carried along with this expansion of space. The distances between galaxies get larger and larger. This expansion of space is only sensible on very large scales. When I'm talking about the scales of the distances between galaxies. 
Between you and me in this room, we don't see the expansion of space. The amount of expansion of space would be small to start with, and it's actually counteracted by the curvature of space by the strong gravity of the Earth. That's also true within a galaxy. I don't see the stars in the Milky Way slowly moving apart because space is being stretched because the gravity of the entire mass of the galaxy is warping the local space. Underline the word local. That's causing all of the stars in the galaxy to be bound. And so they do not participate in the expansion of the universe. I have to get to very large scales, even beyond the scales of local clusters, before I can see the expansion. And this is a picture of the current state of the Hubble law. It uses a variety of the techniques that we described on Friday to find distances. It runs out now to distances of about 450 megaparsecs. Actually, 400 megaparsecs is the most distant object on this particular plot, whose distance was found using a standard candle in the form of supernovae of type 1a. There's a variety of different techniques that are used on different scales for different types of galaxies. Tully-Fisher relationship for spirals that we saw on Friday. Fundamental plane for elliptical galaxies. A technique I didn't talk about called surface brightness fluctuations, which works in early type galaxies, ellipticals and, and early SAs. And then finally, types of supernovae as kind of surrogates or actual, actual standard candles. When you put this all together, we see, in fact, observationally to very high precision that as galaxies get more distant, they are expanding more rapidly. It's exactly the prediction of an expanding space-time. The Big Bang model exactly predicts the Hubble law as observed provided the speeds are small compared to the speed of light, which is going to be the case for most of the objects for which we can get reliable distances through a variety of these particular ideas. Very, no other model of the universe proposed so far can explain the robustness of the Hubble law on tremendously large scales. 400 megaparsecs is way averaging over the local scale of large-scale structure, which is more like 50 to 60 megaparsecs. So we've got more than a factor of eight. We're way out in the cosmic expansion. Down here, it does get raggedy because we're in the regime where the motions of individual galaxies can begin to get in our way. The other piece that's very easily explained naturally by Big Bang expansion is the cosmological redshift. As space expands from a small to a large size, the galaxies all move apart because they're bound. They stay the same size. But light waves, which travel through space-time between the galaxies, get stretched. As you stretch a wavelength to longer wavelengths, you go from bluer to redder wavelengths. Furthermore, the longer the distance between galaxies, the longer that wave of light has to travel through space because it moves at the speed of light to reach the other galaxy. That means it experiences more expansion during that time and therefore gets redder and longer. So in fact, an expanding space-time directly predicts that cosmological redshifts will be directly proportional to distance modulo the actual detailed curvature of space and time. So the redshift of an object, the apparent stretching of the light, gets larger with distance. Note that this is not a Doppler shift, as I've emphasized. This is simply the stretching of light because it is passing through expanding space. We're not sensible of that on local scales, but we are sensible of it on cosmic scales, on the large scale. And again, the Big Bang is very nice because it very naturally explains this. I don't have to contrive something to make the light get longer wavelength and redder. People have come up with ideas like so-called tired light, where, well, the light's got to travel a long ways and it just starts losing energy after a while. Those are all contrivances, and they're all testable, and they've all failed. 
But expansion doesn't require any, any kind of contrivance. It doesn't need, require me to change the properties of light that are heavily studied in the laboratory at all. It simply says they are moving through a field of expanding space and they expand with it. The longer they travel through that from point A to point B, the larger the stretch they experience and therefore the redder they appear. It's a simple natural explanation. We like simple natural explanations. They're good. They don't have to require a lot of machinery and contrivance to work. And that's really one of the beauties of the Big Bang model of the universe. It really is simple at its basis. You can explain it, well, in a couple of simple 162 lectures. Now, it turns out we have another advantage for piecing together the history of the universe, and that is something called cosmic look-back time. Light moves at a finite speed. In a vacuum, it moves at C, about 300,000 kilometers a second. This means that it takes time for light to travel from one place to another within the universe. And this occurs even on local scales. The scale of this room, we don't notice it, because the amount of time it takes light to go from me to the back of the room is about 10 billionths of a second. Human reaction times are barely sensible at a tenth of a second. A tenth of a second would be way up into Earth orbit. If you were talking to an astronaut on the moon, you would actually be sensible of about a one and a half second delay, or actually about a one second delay and change between the Earth and the moon. So you send a message up, a message comes back, you, you sense that one second delay. This, what this means is that as I look into space, I'm seeing things as they were a little bit in the past. When I look at the sun, I'm seeing the sun as it was eight and a half minutes ago. That's how long it takes light to traverse one astronomical unit. When I look out towards the planet Pluto, I'm actually seeing the planet Pluto as it was, on average, about six to eight hours ago. Not as it is right now in this instant, because I must view the universe through the agency of light. The further I go, the more extreme that look back becomes. When I get to cosmic distances, I'm getting into some really interesting territory. The deeper I go into the universe, the further I am looking back in time. This means is when I go out to galaxies that are a billion light years away, three billion, five billion light years away, I am looking back five billion years into the universe's past. So I don't have to be physically present at the Big Bang to know it happened. Because cosmic look-back time lets me see how that has unfolded over cosmic time as far back as I can still receive photons to see it. That's different from almost anything else we do in astronomy. I can actually see the, universe of the, the universe's history from the Big Bang forward unfolding literally before my eyes because of the effect of cosmic look-back time. This is a really shocking idea. It's an extremely powerful one because it means that unlike every other kind of historical science we've had to put together, where we piece it together from evidence I'm holding in my hands or present-day observations gleaned from populations, the study of the evolution of the universe is fundamentally different. I actually watch it unfold before my eyes, literally before my eyes. Now, what do I expect? What's, what, do, what, what does the Big Bang tell me should be the important thing that determines what the past evolution should be and its future evolution? Let's apply a little physics here. Well, the universe, we look around us, is filled with matter. That's an important point, not just because we're made of matter and, well, we matter. We look out into space and we see matter. And Einstein's theory of relativity tells us that matter attracts all other matter to each other. Even if I didn't have relativity and I just had old-fashioned Newtonian gravity, all matter attracts all other matter through the agency of gravity. 
through a mutual gravity. My gravity's mass is pulling on your masses, your masses are pulling on me, we're all pulling on the Earth and vice versa, which is pulling on the Sun, and this sort of an infinite cascade like the child's game. Now, relativity adds an extra dimension to this. It tells us that not only matter, but energy are also equivalent through the famous E equals MC squared. That means that what determines the curvature of space-time in a particular area is not simply the density of matter, how much stuff you've got, but also how much energy is there, maybe in the form of photons or in the form of heat or something else like that. It, too, adds its might to the curvature of space-time. So matter and energy tell space-time how to curve. That's true locally. We can predict how much matter and energy are telling space-time to curve around the sun. We can ask how much that would distort the, the paths of starlight passing very close to the sun during a total eclipse of the sun. We see that distortion in what's called the gravitational lensing effect, and we get exactly the right prediction. We can ask how much the orbit of Mercury is perturbed by the fact that it's getting closer to the sun when it's in, a, in the inside part of its ellipse, and further from the sun it should see a slightly different curvature, and so it feels that bank of curvature of space-time, and so it will slowly precess in its orbit around. It won't exactly close, but it will actually be an open, running-around loop. General relativity predicts it exactly, and there were numerous other analogous tests. Now, the combined matter and energy of the entire universe play a similar role that they do in our solar system. They determine the global geometry of this expanding space and time. So if we know what the matter and energy density of the universe is, what its energy content is, that should tell me how space is globally curved by all the matter and energy contained within it. The way I quantify that is in terms of something called the density parameter, which somewhat whimsically has been termed omega naught. Big capital omega here with a little zero on it. The geometry of the universe on the largest scales, on the global scales, is determined by the amount of matter in there. Let's say for the moment I had a very, very high density universe. I had a lot of matter in it. All of that matter calling to all the other matter and curving the space-time around it will actually cause the entire geometry of space to curve around itself. If I describe that mathematically, it's positively curved. An example of a positively curved surface is a sphere. So what I would expect is positive curvature, which means the sides of a triangle will close in three angles. Those three angles will add up to greater than 180 degrees. There's other rules for the geometry. A low-density universe, there will be very little matter inside of space-time, but there'll be enough to basically give it a little bit of curvature, but in fact it will be negatively curved. And an example of a negatively curved space is mathematically described by a hyperbola, hyperbolic surface rather than a spherical surface. Now, a spherical surface is closed in on itself. A hyperbolic surface is a wide open curved surface. Where the two cross over, the space is flat. And so there's going to be a dividing line between what do I mean by high density and low density. There's a place where I go from positive curvature and open up into negative curvature. It's going to be at a place where I'm going to receive a critical density, and that critical density actually makes the universe flat. There's no curvature at all. If I go from positive to negative, I've got to cross through zero. Where I cross through zero is called the critical density. Now, this allows me to define this parameter, omega naught, is I go out into the large scales, and I measure the average density of matter and energy in the universe, 
and I divide that by the critical density required to give me a flat universe now. And I call that omega naught. It's dimensional. It doesn't have any dimensions. All I have to do is make certain I measure my density and estimate my critical density in exactly the same way. This is in principle an observable quantity. In fact, it is observable. It's just going to be kind of challenging to actually come up with the answer. And a lot of cosmology has been, if many people like to call it, the search for two numbers. One of those numbers we've already met, the rate of expansion, the Hubble parameter. The second number is this critical density parameter. Is the amount of density in the matter cause it to be globally positively curved, globally negatively curved, or is it flat? Answering that question is important for piecing together the past and future history of the evolving universe. Now let's see again how this emphasize how this omega naught fa factors into the geometry. If omega naught is greater than one, that means the local density is greater than the critical density. That tells me of local density, the, the matter density, average matter density is greater than the critical density. I will have a positively curved universe. That's represented by this sphere here on top. It's a finite universe, but it's unbounded. It's unbounded in the sense that if I go anywhere on the surface of the Earth, I never run into a wall. I never fall off the Earth. I can always close my path around in any direction. That's a two-dimensional, finite, yet unbounded surface. If I abstract this into three dim four dimensions, I can go in any direction. In a spherical universe, if it was static, I would have this weird thing that if I traveled in that direction far enough, I would eventually come back here. Or if I go that way, I'd eventually come back in from this direction. Or up that way, I'd come back in from below, kind of like cartoon characters in a, in a funny set. That spherical geometry demands that. That makes some very specific and perhaps even wacky predictions. Parallel light waves will converge on a point somewhere in the future. Okay, If I've got two light waves which start out as parallel here at the equator of the sphere, they will converge on the pole, and similarly in other places. Great parallel lines are originally great circles, but they are not are originally great circles, and great circles always converge on a point, or a second point, the antipodes. So this predicts something about the geometry, and I should, in principle, be able to measure this. Furthermore, this triangle here, the inside angles, add up to greater than 180 degrees. If omega naught is less than 1, that means the average density of the universe is less than the critical density. That means the universe geometry will be wide open. Here's an example of a hyperbolic surface in two dimensions. It has, it's an infinite universe. It has no edge. It simply goes on forever. It's unbounded. And it's got a general hyperbolic curvature. What hyperbolic curvature means is if I draw a triangle in here, the inside angles will add up to less than 180 degrees. The inside angles will all pinch a little bit. Furthermore, if I send out two parallel light waves, they will slowly but surely diverge in the distance rather than converging as in a positive curvature. Those are all geometrically how I define the curvature of a surface. Finally, if I'm exactly on the line at omega naught equals 1, this is a critical or flat universe. It's represented by the sheet down here. Now our geometry is just good old-fashioned Euclidean geometry in a plane. The inside angles of a triangle add up to exactly 180 degrees. Parallel lines stay parallel forever. So if you send out two parallel light rays, they will just keep on parallel forever. They will never converge nor diverge. 
It's an infinite universe in the sense it has no edge, and it's perfectly spatially flat everywhere. In principle, we can measure this, but we have to get on large enough scales that we begin to be sensible of the large-scale geometry of the universe. So we're going to be looking for effects that have maybe parallel light rays converging or diverging or maybe staying flat. We'll be looking for others. We'll actually go out and measure the density. Is the density bigger, smaller, or exactly at the critical density? That's where the observational tension is in defining this so-called density parameter. Any questions about that before we go on? Yes, sir. These shapes that we're talking about are, like, for example, if we take the sphere, are we only talking about the surface of the sphere, or is the sphere solid all the way through? We're talking about the surface of the sphere. Okay. Okay, because what we're doing is we're embedding, the problem is space and time are in four dimensions. There's three dimensions of space and one of time. So the way to look at this is I've collapsed one of the three dimensions of space, and I've built a flatland on the surface of that sphere. What's the depth of the sphere? Time. As time proceeds, the sphere gets larger, like someone inflating a balloon. So you want to view the depth direction in these pictures here as the time axis. What I've done is I've showed you a slice of space-time in which I've suppressed one of the three space dimensions so I can draw it. Right? If I want to draw something three-dimensional, I can draw that shape on a two-dimensional surface. If I wanted to draw a four-dimensional surface, I would have to do that on a three-dimensional blackboard. Unfortunately, our eyes are two-dimensional and we can't sense it, so we've got to kind of close our eyes and you know, I can't do it either. It's, but you can describe it mathematically. That's the kind of the beauty of this. You can describe these surfaces mathematically. A sphere in four dimensions has all the same rules of geometry as a sphere in two dimensions, just slightly different. It's a very it's a, it's a, it's a simple idea. It's just it's kind of hard to get your head around the first time you encounter it. Now, let's start the game here. We've got two numbers which describe the universe. The rate of expansion of the universe now and the current density of matter to the critical density that tells me whether the universe is spherical, hyperbolic and infinite, spherical and, f and f bounded, finite yet unbounded, and then flat and infinite. If we look at the universe now, in the past it was smaller and the galaxies are closer together in space. If I go back and run the clock back further and further, those galaxies are eventually going to start touching and eventually they're going to start to overlap. All the galaxies and all the matter is going to be in one place. How far back we have to go until all the matter is in one place, I'm going to call the age of the universe. We're going to define the beginning as the point at which all the matter is in the same place, all sharing the same volume at the same instant of time. That's what I'll call the age of the universe. Now, how do we understand this? How can you understand how we do this? Well, we're getting close to spring break, so it's almost road trip time. Some of you take road trips anyway. Let's say you leave Columbus and you're going to head down to Florida for spring break, but in the rush to get away, you've left your watch behind and the clock in the car never works. But you want to know how long you've been on the road. Well, if you've got a good road and there's no traffic, you might think that your average speed is about 100 kilometers an hour. And you, hopefully your odometer is working and your odometer tells you, oh, look, I've traveled 230 kilometers at an average speed of 100 kilometers per hour. I know I left the house at about 8 o'clock. What's the approximate time now? Well, the time since you left, t, is simply your distance divided by your speed. How fast have you been moving, and how far have you gone? Well, in this case, it's 230 kilometers divided by 100 kilometers an hour, or 2 hours and 2 hours, 2.3 hours. Oops. So I could 
keep time with my odometer. Now, of course, it's not very good, right, in, a, in an instantaneous sense, because after all, traffic is such that I have to speed up and slow down every now and then. So I've got to sort of measure my speed averaged over large enough distances that I get around that small scale changes in traffic patterns or road conditions. And you know what? I can actually keep time pretty good. I know, for example, when my wife and I drive up to visit her mother up in Madison, Wisconsin, it takes us about nine hours, ten hours on average. I could, if I wanted to, figuring out my average speed, tell you exactly how far Madison is. It's about a thousand miles, round numbers. So it's a very simple calculation to do. We could play the same game with the universe, and this is exactly how we do this. Hubble's law tells me that a galaxy that's currently a distance d away from another galaxy will appear to be receding with a speed v. That speed v is given by the Hubble constant times the distance. I want to ask if that speed is representative of the average speed that it's moving, how long would it take to go from together to that far apart? Well, time is simply distance divided by an average speed. So time is simply distance divided by v. But v is equal to Hubble constant times d, so t is equal to d over Hubble constant times d. Oh, look, the distances cancel. And the time we call the Hubble time is simply 1 over the Hubble constant. The Hubble constant measures a rate. It's a rate of travel, a rate of expansion. The inverse of a rate is a time scale. So what T naught does is it sets the characteristic time scale of the expansion of the universe. Now what this is doing is it assumes it's actually going to be exactly the age of the universe if in fact the universe was flat and always expanding at exactly the same rate. As if again, I'm driving from you know, Columbus to Naples, Florida and I can somehow contrive it so I never hit a traffic light, I never hit traffic, and I can always travel at exactly 100 kilometers per hour. I can give you a pretty darn good prediction of when I'm going to arrive in Naples, given when I left Columbus, knowing nothing else but the distance from here to Naples. Same thing we're going to do for the universe. We're going to ask how old is the universe by do, using the Hubble constant as setting the time scale of the expansion. It gives me an estimate of the age of the universe. Now, this was a simple version of this. I can do a much more sophisticated analysis, which takes into account changes in the rate of expansion because of the presence of matter and energy. In other words, by combining it with knowledge of omega naught, of the matter and energy, con matter and energy density of the universe. Now, Let's uh, explore what I mean by that caveat. We know, we certainly expect, that cosmic expansion is not constant throughout the history of the universe. In fact, if it was faster in the past, then I expect that the expansion is very fast, but there's enough matter in the universe that, it's, that the gravity calling of matter calling to all the other matter slowly slows it down. Just like if I took you know, a weight like my car keys, I start out at a certain speed, but because the gravity of the Earth calls to them, they stop, turn around, and come back. So the rate at which my car keys are going up and coming down changes because it feels the matter of the Earth, and vice versa, and is slowed down. So too, all the galaxies feel the gravity of all the other galaxies. If there's enough of them, that gravity will be enough to slow the expansion down over the billions of years of cosmic time that have elapsed. 
So if that was the case, then T naught, my estimate of the Hubble constant, would tend to overestimate the age of the universe. Just like if I was to be able to start out moving really fast on my road trip, but then I suddenly slowed down, but I used the speed that I started with to estimate time, I would way overestimate the age of the universe. If, on the other hand, the speed of expansion was slower in the past, but has been getting steadily and steadily faster, this would be the case if there was a non-zero cosmological constant. If that cosmological constant is big enough, cosmological constant acts as kind of a negative gravity. It pushes things apart rather than pulling them together like gravity does. If that's big enough, it can actually overwhelm the effect of gravity and actually cause the expansion to begin to accelerate. It acts like a pressure inflating the universe, resisting and overcoming the resistance to that expansion of all the matter, of all the galaxies calling to each other through gravity. If we lived in a universe where the cosmological constant was big, the rate of expansion I measure today is not a correct estimate of the rate of expansion in the past, and so my estimate of the age of the universe would underestimate the actual age of the universe. The universe would actually be older than simply measuring the Hubble constant around me. So I can't get away with just measuring the Hubble constant. I have to also know something about the matter and energy content of the universe and the presence or absence of this cosmological constant term to know the degree to which that expansion is expected to either have sped up or slowed down since the distant past, since the beginning. So how old is the universe really? How do we actually get at this number? Well, we need to do two, quite frankly, hard-to-measure numbers. It's taken us the better part of 60-odd years to measure these numbers accurately or more. The Hubble parameter, h naught is basically how fast the universe is expanding now. And as I've just shown, even though Hubble made his original estimate in 1929, it really hasn't been until the early part of the 21st century that our measurement techniques of distance have gotten enough precision to measure it with only 10% accuracy. We're still working on trying to beat that down. We'd love to get it down to a few percent. It'd be great. We could really pin things down if that's the case. That's a very, very challenging problem. It's not impossible, it's just really challenging. It takes a lot of work. The second parameter is this density parameter. This one's even harder. Okay? How the measure what this measures is how the matter and energy density have affected that expansion over time. A lot of matter will actually cause the expansion to have slowed over cosmic time, whereas a large cosmological constant can actually push against the expansion and push it along faster than it would go otherwise if it was absent. And then the balance between those two gives me the actual expansion history. So that's what we're looking for. We need to estimate both of these numbers to determine the expansion history. That's why so much effort has been expended over the last few years to measure the Hubble constant, to measure the local density of matter and energy, and to try to establish whether or not there is a cosmic acceleration term, a, what we call a cosmological constant, for lack of a better word. Some of the things we'll be talking about over the next couple of lectures will be looking at how we do that and what the current state of the art of those measurements is. But for today, we want to get to the bottom line. The bottom line is this. When you combine this information of our knowledge of the expansion of the universe from the measurements of the best galaxy distances, that Hubble expansion plot I showed a few towards the beginning of lecture, is currently about the state of the art. 
I combine this with data on the cosmic background radiation that we're going to meet tomorrow. I combine it with measurements of the matter and energy content of the universe and changes of the rate of expansion measured through detailed Hubble parameters. What I find is I get an answer like 14 plus or minus 1.4 billion years. We know the age of the universe to an accuracy of about 10% right now. We can probably do better because most of that 10% is not ignorance. It's basically the coarse-grained nature of our distance measurement techniques. There's still issues that we haven't cleared up to make our rulers much better, more precise than we'd like them to be. What this number assumes is as follows. It assumes a Hubble constant of 70 plus or minus 7 kilometers per megaparsec from the best Hubble key project data. It also assumes a flat, spatially flat, infinite universe, omega naught of 1, in which 30% of the matter content comes from, of the density content comes from ordinary matter, mostly in the form of dark matter, actually. And 70% comes from the energy density associated with a non-zero cosmological constant. Big surprise, that cosmological constant's a lot more important to the uh, geometry of the universe than the matter content of the universe. This age is also nicely consistent with the ages of the oldest stars that we see in globular clusters and in the halo of galaxies. So we don't have a problem that Hubble had of making a universe younger than its oldest constituents. You can't be younger than your mother. So the universe is in fact just about 14 billion plus or minus 1.4 billion years old. We'll look at some of the consequences of this over the next couple of lectures.